You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. Well, welcome this morning. Really glad that you're here. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. That's where we're going to be at today. <clears throat> We've just finished up, if you're, if you're new, joining us for the first time, we just finished up a series on um, the parables of Jesus. And um, we got one more kind of mini series, if you will, before we jump into our book for this summer. We're going to be preaching through the book of Jonah starting um, in a couple of weeks here. But until then, um, there's some things that we kind of want to chat about as a church, but we want to come from a text to do it. So the, the way we talk about it here, our normal sort of diet of preaching around here is to preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse. That's how we do it. But occasionally we may talk about a topic or something like that. But um, the, the adage goes like this. We're, we're cool with like topical preaching on a Sunday morning as long as it's exposition, as long as it's coming from a text and teaching um, the point of that text. And so um, these next couple of weeks, that's exactly what we're going to be doing in this series that we're calling Apprentices of Jesus. Okay, Apprentices of Jesus. When I say the word disciple, what comes into your mind? Um, you probably get a lot of images that pop up, right? You've got um, probably some, if you've got any background in church, right? You have a paradigm of what that means or to be a disciple or in discipleship means that once a week you sit at a table with somebody else and you confess all your sins and, and feel bad for a minute and then you go on with your week. Or some of you may have a picture of disciple and you think of, uh, you think of the, the lone man climbing the mountain to the monastery and then he, he becomes a disciple and trains in the wax on, wax off kind of a way. And, uh, and he dedicates his life. Um, the reason we use disciple around um, a lot of those sort of images or, or cultural images is because there, there are elements of, of truth in all of those, of what it means to be a disciple, a devotee. Um, the word literally translated from Greek, disciple, um, means apprentice. It means learner. That's what a disciple actually is. The disciples of Jesus were those who learned life from him. How do you know if you're a disciple of Jesus or not? Are you learning life from him? in a deep and meaningful way. Um, in fact, in the ancient world, um, disciples of a rabbi or a teacher, um, they would say, we want the dust of our rabbi's sandals to be all over our clothes. That's how closely we want to follow behind our teacher. And so a disciple is someone who is apprenticing, right? Um, we live in a university town, so apprenticeship is not the, the predominant educational um, paradigm, but Think about, th think back in antiquity. If you wanted to become a barber, what did you do? You went and hung out with a barber a lot and you watched how they cut hair over and over and over and over and over until pretty soon it went from you just watching and them doing to now you're helping, right? You're, you're a little bit further. And then after some time after that, what you would see is the barber would finally go, okay, here, I want you to hold the shears and I'm going to kind of coach you from the side, right? And so with all the fear and trepidation, you start to give first haircuts and a, a couple of ears lopped off. And then um, later you get better and you get better and you get better. And then finally, the uh, the apprenticer or the, um, the teacher in that situation would finally go, I want to hand this over to you. Like you're going to do it and I'm going to watch. Um, and Jesus, all through his ministry, does this with his disciples. Um, he, he sends them out, right? He teaches them. And then he says, okay, I want you to go heal. I want you to go um, preach the good news of the kingdom. I want, you to, um, I want you to watch what I do. And then you're going to actually do it. Um, today is no different, my friends. We are, as disciples, apprentices of Jesus. Here's the question, though. What does that mean? What does that look like? 
right? If you left here and in your mind, you were like, okay, disciple equals apprentice, good. Yeah, you'd have something, but to actually get a grasp on it, what does it mean? I want, I want to take you to, for, for New City, as we define disciple from the scriptures, I want you um, to look back at Matthew chapter 4 for just a moment. This verse is going to kind of frame the next couple of weeks for us. But in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, Jesus says this. It's a good summary of what it means to be a disciple. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. There are three things in that one simple verse that instruct us on what it means to be a disciple. And look, the first one, what does Jesus say? Follow me. He doesn't start by saying, go do what I do. He says, come be with me. Come watch me. Come watch how I do it. The second thing he says, I will make you. I'm going to take what you currently are and I'm going to shape you um, into a new way of being and living in the world. Anybody else follow Jesus for a minute? And he just starts messing with all your stuff, right? He starts messing with how you view marriage and parenting and money and sexuality and on and on and on the list goes, but you're with him, right? He, he takes you along and he begins to change you. And then the last thing he says there is, I will make you fishers of men. Jesus is talking to fishermen right here. And so he says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. What if Jesus were going to look at you and say, I'm going to make you an accountant of men. I'm going to make you a mother of men. I'm going to make you an engineer of men. Jesus takes everything that they know and says, I'm going to orient all you are toward my mission toward people. And so that, that as a summary of what it means to be dis a disciple is, is very helpful. And so for us, here's how we try to put some language to that. A disciple is a person who is with Jesus, with him, follow me, remember, changed by Jesus, I will make you. And then finally, committed to the mission of Jesus, fishers of men, Right? He takes all that we are and he orients it toward his mission of seeking and saving the lost. And here's the thing. Language creates culture. We know this to be true. And so sharing some language around, when we say disciple, what's actually the center of the bullseye is really, really important for our church. Um, and so this is the shorthand way of us talking about what does it mean to actually be a disciple? How do we know when we're actually making disciples? Is it because we're busy or is it because we see people actually experiencing close fellowship with him, being changed by him and living on mission with him? So um, this is, um, yeah, this is kind of the overview. So each of the three weeks, the next week, um, we're going to go with Jesus. Is sermon number one, we're going to talk about that today. Um, changed by Jesus next week, and then the week after that, I'm on mission with Jesus, okay? This week, it all builds on this foundation. I love this reality. I love that the first thing the Lord does is call us to himself. So Matthew chapter 11, that was all kind of preamble there to set us up, but Matthew chapter 11, we're going to read verses 25 through 30. Could I ask you to go ahead and just stand up in reverence for the reading of God's word? Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 25, it says this, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You may be seated. Now, if you just had those words and no sermon on them, I think those are pretty comforting words from the Lord. 
Say, come be with me. Rest for your soul. Who, didn't, who doesn't see that? And just there's this little part of you that kind of salivates, right? That you just, you want it. Who doesn't want rest for their souls? Um, being with Jesus is not a heavy, heavy burden. No, no, no. He is a burden lifting kind of a God. But at the core, what these verses are going to teach us today about being with Jesus is that you can't be a disciple without humbling yourself. Humility is an entrance requirement, and you are not saved by humility. I want to make that clear. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. But goodness, if you can't admit that you need him, you'll never have him. It just doesn't work that way. Did you notice? He says, you've hidden yourself from the proud, from the people who think they understand everything. But what do you do to the people who come like children? There you are. It's a beautiful thing. A question should be rolling around in our hearts when we think, do I really want to be a disciple? Do I really want to apprentice my life to Jesus? And here's the question. Can I keep my perception of dignity and have Jesus too? Like, can I keep, like, I, I, I want to put on some good appearances, right? And I want to I trust in those things. And can I do that and have Jesus too? And G, I think Jesus answers our question here. No. Jesus is going to mess with us this morning. Here's really the main point of the text. Jesus invites the humble to be with him. That's for you this morning. That's an invitation to you. You humble yourself, man. He he wants you to be with him and him with you. That's a beautiful thing. And so from the text here, I just, I want to walk us through a couple of things, four things about being, about being with him. The text teaches us this. So will you look back with me at verse 25? This is the first point, the barrier to being. What blocks us, if you will? Verse 25, it says, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Now, right here in this little prayer, Jesus is praying to the Father. Um, We see that he has what every ancient Jewish person would have wanted, and that's fellowship with God. The text tells us in a word, right? It says, how does Jesus start his prayer? Father, right? No individual, right? Any, Any person in this time period or custom would have had the audacity to call God Father as an individual. Now, as a group of people, as Israel, they would have said God is our Father, but to say God is my Father, they would have viewed as unbelievable, as blasphemous, Um, In fact, think about this. What got Jesus killed at the end of his life, right? They thought he was a blasphemer because he was saying, I have something of the father that nobody else has yet. And while no individual would claim this word father, don't miss this. Everybody wanted it. And they wanted the implications of what came with it, to be able to call God Father, mean that the sick, poor, and destitute longed for this, right? Think of all the moments of Jesus with, um, with healing people as he encounters the paralytic or the, the blind man who is literally shouting out, come have mercy on me, son of David. I need what you have. I need you. I want you. I want connection with God and the healing that it brings. But man, it's not just the sick and the destitute. The teachers of the law, the people with the religious pedigree of the day, they wanted to be thought of well by God. They wanted the I'm proud of you gaze of the Father. And so that motivated them to do the things that they did. To have God and be with him was everything to these people. And I don't want you to miss this principally, New City. Every person in this room and every corner of our city right now longs to be the beloved of God, whether they know it or not. 
Every person longs for this. That part of you that wants to thank someone when things are good, do you notice that? Even, even in non-Christians, right, those people who are not apprentices of Jesus, when life unfolds beautifully, there's something in them that wants to say thank you. To whom? This is the desire in us to be the beloved of God. That part of you that longs for solace, like comfort in your pain and approval, right? Don't, don't you, right? we're on Mother's Day, right? Isn't there something special when mom or when dad look at you and say, I'm proud of you, I believe in you, I love you, right? Those words come with some weight. Think even at the baptism of our Lord. As he comes up out of the water, the father cracks open the sky and he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, right? He speaks the truth of the son's identity. It's the, you are my beloved, my son. All of us long to be the beloved of God. And Jesus tells us this, that he has what we long for by praying, Father. He prays, Lord of heaven and earth. He sees as God is his father and as he is God's beloved, he sees the father as Lord over all. He's like, you're in charge, right? But Jesus tells us here something quite interesting. He tells us that there is a wrong way and a right way to seek this belovedness. Like the longing that you are the beloved of God, you cannot hide that longing. It's gonna come out of every single one of us, but there's a right way and a wrong way to go after it. See, there's a way of seeking God's approval that strangely blocks you from getting it. Look back at the text with me. Look where Jesus says in verse 25, you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Like are the wise and understanding, let's chat, are they not seeking God? Are they not looking for him? Are they not trying to get a hold of him? And he says, those people who are wise and understanding, you've hidden these things, these, these glories of the kingdom. This is a really, really interesting thing. You gotta kind of sense Jesus's sarcasm here. Like if you walk around telling people how wise and understanding you are, I hate to be the one to break this to you now, but you probably aren't. <laughs> the teachers of the law perceive themselves as wise and understanding. And it is their high view of themselves that keeps them from seeing Jesus. Did you notice that? You have, he, the Father has hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Can I tell you this morning, New City, pride is the greatest barrier that keeps you from knowing God and being with Jesus. It is your sense of self-superiority that will block you from having the superior treasure of the king. And here's the thing about pride. Some pride is really obvious, right? It's obvious when somebody walks in and goes, I have arrived, right? We would go, come on, it's not a good look. Right? Most pride is much sneakier than that, right? You're like, I don't do that. Okay, well, let's chat. If you were to walk in the room and say, yeah, I, don't, I just don't think I need God, right? That's overt. That's like the teachers of the law here, the Pharisees. But think about some of the subtle ways that this comes out. Um, blind religious observance. You know, that can be pride. You can use re religious activity as a way of sort of propping yourself up to God and saying, look at, look at all the things I did. I am good enough to deserve your love. Jesus in Matthew's gospel, he says, in the end, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons? Look at my resume. I belong in the kingdom of God. And Jesus's response to them is, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Do you notice the difference here? See, the proud present their resume to God as the means by which they should be accepted. 
But the Christian presents the resume of Jesus as the reason for which they would be accepted. Can I ask you right now, if you stood before God today and he, let's pretend there are actually gates, okay? And you walk, you walk up to the gates and he said, why should I let you in? If what you give in that moment is, well, I mean, I went to church every Sunday, I gave to the poor, look at all this stuff. I have a long resume, I've done a lot of good stuff. Can I tell you, that is not Christianity. That is self-improvement with Christian language. That's a dangerous, dangerous form of pride. I think pride often comes out as prayerlessness. Additionally, this is how I see it show up in myself. Um, Here's why I say that, because when you don't pray, guess what you inevitably believe? I don't need God's intervention. Man, I got to be honest, there are moments in pastoral ministry where I'm going like, man, what our people really need right now is some strong leadership from me. They don't need prayer from me. Listen, there are moments for strong leadership, but I'm telling you, if I buy into the lie that it is not God doing the work or building or, or blessing or growing the things, I have vastly misunderstood my place in this economy. I'd say the same thing to you in your economy. As you go to work or you go into your home and you go, God, I don't have time to pray. I've got to parent these kids. Oh goodness, what if we repented right now and said, no, 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 come come back, come back, come back. You don't have time not to pray. You don't have time not to invite the work and the help of God think another, um, so those are, those are a couple of the subtle ways. There are certainly more that we could think about in the life of our church and in our city. Um, one that's more overt, so you might see, is um, the sin of immodesty. And now, here, here, when, when you hear immodesty, you're probably just thinking about clothes and like what people wear. And it's not that that's not part of the conversation, but immodesty is any behavior or thing that is trying to draw all the attention to me right? To say, look how impressive I am. Look how big I am. That comes out in all kinds of ways, not just in the ways that we dress. And so all of these can be very subtle shifts into pride. And Jesus says to live in that kind of pride is for him to hide himself from you. But Jesus graciously tells us, that while pride will hide him away, guess what? Humility will reveal him. Look back at the text. He says, you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding. And look, what's that word? Revealed, uncovered them to little children. Jesus is not talking about just literal children right now, though he's not, not talking about children. He's talking about child-likeness, the nature of children. There's a reason why children are my favorite people to talk to, and it's because there's no pretense with a kid, right? There's just no, like, like the questions, the candor that comes out of a child, like the questions that your kid will ask you are like, you feel embarrassed, but they don't feel embarrassed at all, right? There's just this total like candor, this honesty. There's no veil. And you know why there's no veil? Because they don't know there's any reason that they should be embarrassed. There's nothing between them. And that's what Jesus is inviting us into right here. To say like this complete openness and candor and connection with the Father, man, This is what you can have. This complete access. Timothy Keller says it well. I want you to look at this quotation. Only a child would pester a king for a glass of water in the middle of the night. That's the kind of access you have. Man, I just want you to believe that this morning. I want you to receive that if you are in Christ this morning, what you have is complete access. You are completely known by him, and he, by grace, wants to be known 
by you. Make no mistake here this morning, my friends. You are not saved by humility. You are saved by Christ. That's not what I'm saying here. But listen, if you don't admit that you need him, you'll never have him. That's the barrier. That's what keeps you from him. Can I ask you, are you coming to Jesus with the heart of a child today? What's keeping you from just stepping into his presence without any posturing, without any saying, look here, at here here's why you should love me or accept me or want me? Can I ask you this morning, are you, are you proud of how good you are at being a disciple? Don't hear what I'm not saying. Like if God has brought growth in your life, you're obeying him, there is a right sense of like, and I, you feel some joy in that. But are you going, look how impressive I am? Whether you're saying that outside or you're saying that on the inside. Or, are you honest with yourself this morning? You see, friends, if your hands are full of reasons that Jesus should accept you, you'll never be able to grasp him. Instead of that, what if you confess? Like right now to him, you go, oh my gosh. Yeah, I do, I do feel the need to be impressive to get you to love me. What if instead you just said, Jesus, there's no part of my life that doesn't need you. There's no part of it that doesn't need your help, your repair, your leadership, your attitude, your hope, your help, every square inch of life. That's what it looks like to walk around the barrier. Just to receive what he has said to be true. Come to me, right? You see, Jesus here, he identifies the barriers of being with him, of experiencing fellowship with him. But he can't even talk about the barriers without gushing over the beauty of it. That's point number two, the beauty of being. The beauty of being. Look at verse 26 in the text. Jesus prays, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus right here, he is reflecting on the nature of his Father's will while he's praying. There, there's a strange irony here. Jesus has just said, you've hidden yourself, and I think what you're doing, God, is beautiful. Like, here's the thing. Jesus loved everything about the Father, loves everything about the Father. That's why they have this intimacy, this connection, oh, that that would be said about us, that everything the Father brings that we could say, um, as the hymn uh, my friend Ben reconstructed, he ruleth all things well, to believe that. Jesus sees the goodness of it. Such was your gracious will. Do you notice he, he sees the overwhelming graciousness of the will of the Father, that the Father would want to show himself to people, and he can't think about that without celebrating. Can I tell you this morning, friends, the fact that God, the God, reveals himself is the most gracious and glorious thing in the universe. Nothing better has ever happened than the almighty, omnipotent. That means he, he can do anything, omniscient, all, he knows everything. That God has stepped below the line of perceivability and shown himself to you, revealed himself to children. Oh my word, can you believe this? Like, I know, let's not talk about it just as a theological concept for a second. Let's talk about it as you. Like he revealed himself to you. Do you know in eternity past, before anything in the world was created, before you ever had the chance to think a thought, before you ever had the chance to do something good or something bad, that the Father predestined you. He said, that's my son. That's my daughter. And then all this time went by and you were born and he called you, 
right? He sent a preacher of the gospel. He, um, for, for some of us, I know my, my friend Keith, right? He was we- reading a weird Christian book that he probably wouldn't even recommend now. And God saved him right there. God called him. Even with an imperfect messenger, he called him. And in that moment when he called him, he took the heart of stone and he replaced it with a heart of flesh. That's what we call regeneration. He made you new, purchased you by his spirit, and he stirred faith in you so that you would believe in him Right now, he is sanctifying you. That means he is changing you. And there is a promise that at the end of the age, he will actually glorify you. He'll renew you. He'll complete you. He'll redeem you. He did all that so you could have him. So you could see him. See, I love playing hide and go seek with my children. It's one of my, one of my favorite things to do. And uh, w- when they're young, right, you kind of go easy on them. If you're the hider, right, you always like leave a leg out or something or uh, an arm out from behind the curtain to give them, to give them an, easy, an easy shot, right? But then as things start to level up, it's like, I will never be found. And I have five minutes of just quiet to myself in a dark place. I was like, Maybe I just live here now. Maybe this is what I do. But man, by grace, God just doesn't make himself hard to find for you. Like right now, he wants you to seek him. He says, if you seek him, guess what? He's not going to be hard to find. He's not trying to keep you from him. Right now, if you come, you humble yourself, guess what? Think of the beauty of that. Like almighty God wants you to see him. Friend, you do not have to wonder if God wants to be found by you. If you right now, if you believe the gospel, the grace of his will is already in motion in your life. He is already showing himself to you. I am the summer between my seventh and eighth grade year, um, I went with my best friend to visit some of his family in Colorado. And uh, the thought now of my parents, like letting two seventh grade boys get on an airplane is fantastic. And I wish, I hope they would do it again today because it was amazing. Um, And so we get there and we get to um, get to his family's home and uh, we got there at night, but then in the morning you get up and you look out the front windows and like the breakfast nook there, and there are mountains in the background. And now I know we're from central Illinois, most of us, so I want to explain to you, a mountain is like a, it's like a piece of rock and dirt that's really, it's big, okay? It's not, it's not flat. I, I digress. Go Google this after, you'll figure it out. But man, I'm sitting there at breakfast, and I am like overwhelmed by it. Even, even as a, a seventh grade young man, I am eating breakfast and I feel like the food's about to fall out of my mouth because I'm just overwhelmed by the beauty of this. And I, I remember this so vividly. I asked, what is it like to wake up to this every day? I'll never forget it. She said, honestly, you just get used to it. You know, what I, mean? I don't even notice it most of the time. And I was like, what do you, how do you get used to this? See, for most of us, we've been around this long enough or we just stopped looking at the beauty of him revealing himself to us or preserving us or saving us. We've just looked at it so much. We're just like, it's just background noise to me. Of course, Jesus loves me. Of course, Jesus saved me. Friends, I am inviting you back to the Rocky Mountains afresh this morning. You got to see the glory of it. He didn't have to do it. But he did it. Why? Because he set his love on you. The eternal God did that. Will you please this morning feel the warmth of his love? He didn't need you to be smart or moral to save you. In your utter smallness and your complete failure, guess what he did? He made you his beloved. That's right where he called you to be with him. Christian, I just, I need you to receive that this morning. 
when we are with him, when we, when we are being with him, it does something in our relationships. There's something, dare I say, mystical about what this does in our relationship. To him, I want you to look at verse 27. That's point number three, the bond of being. I want us to look at the bond of being here. Verse 27, it says, Jesus in his prayer, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Now this may seem odd or even kind of technical, like why, why is Jesus going into the relationship dynamics between him and his father in the middle of this prayer? Well, there's something really connected here, really important. There is a reciprocal relationship between God the Father and God the Son. This is a relationship that um, theologians have been trying to articulate and grasp forever. Um, there, there are a couple of images that we can use to kind of begin to think about this. This is um, some of, of what we would teach as the doctrine of the Trinity, right? That you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all fully God, um, one God, three persons. Um, but, but in all of those things, what, what we have to recognize is that when you had a son, if you're in the room and you had a son, that son had a beginning, right? There was a point where he was made, nine months went by, um, he was delivered into the world. That son was your begotten son. You begat him, okay? The father and the son, they have been a father and son relationship forever, it's never not been that way. I know that's hard to wrap your mind around. I've heard one image where it's like, imagine a foot pressed into the sand on the beach. The footprint has always been underneath the, the foot. It's always been like that. Again, the images will fail us in talking about the nature of this relationship, but what I want you to draw attention to right here is the nature of their bond. Look at this, shared shared authority. All things have been handed over to me by my father, right? Everything that the father has, he is handed to the son. The son is working his will in the world. All things. There's not just shared authority. There's also shared intimacy. Did you notice? No one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the son. There is this connection between them, this deep knowledge, this love, this adoration that's unlike anything else in the world. But here's the kicker, and I want you to acknowledge this this morning. There is a sense in which Jesus takes this intimacy that he has with the Father, and he shares it with us. Do you notice that? Nobody knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. No one knows the Father except the Son and Jihei. No one knows the Father except the Son and Jason. No one knows the Father except the Son and Eric, and on and on and on. If you are in Christ, you need to hear this, that beautiful fellowship, that adoring love between the Father and the Son, Jesus has said to you, I want you to come experience that with me. I want to invite you into it. You got to hear this this morning, as, as bonded as the Father is to the Son, are Christians bonded to Christ? Like is secure. Think about that. Will the, will the father ever turn his back on the son? No, never. It will never happen. Will the father ever forsake the son? No. Will the son ever stop loving the father? No. As secure as that love is, that's how secure the love you have from Christ is. You're safe. Can I tell you this morning, believe, you are, you are secure, right? Some of us are so worried, like we're frantic, we're anxious people. 
I need you to believe this morning that you are secure, you are safe in God. He's not gonna stop loving you because of what just happened. And you come to him, right? He's yours and you are his. You are, you're not just secure, you're, you're purchased. That means you're not your own. You belong to him. Man, believing this reality makes obeying Jesus so much easier. Because when you show up to your life and you go, man, it ain't my life anymore. And it's like, how could, how could I choose to walk down this road of disobedience? Because, man, I belong to Jesus. He purchased me. Number three, friends, you are beloved. That's what you receive from this father-son relationship. You are the beloved of the father now. Dare I say it, you're wanted by him. Man, that's hard to believe. This last couple of weeks, something I've been realizing about my, my own life and relationships is that it's hard for me to conceive of relationships where I'm not needed, but wanted. Like I get being needed, right? I, I'm needed as a pastor, I'm needed as a friend, I'm needed to help move, I'm needed to do this thing or that thing. But to believe that we could just relate to one another just because we like want to be together and you don't need anything from me is really hard for me to receive. Can I tell you, believing this about God changes that dynamic in my relationships. To believe, man, I'm beloved of the Father. I can, and it lets me extend that to other people. Like just to, just to love them and enjoy them. This is the bond that's created by being with Jesus. And in all of that, Jesus kind of comes to the crescendo. We're almost done here. Thanks for hanging in. He comes to the crescendo. And it's point number four. It's what I want to actually call the burden of being. Track with me for a moment. In verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is life. Jesus is not naive about life. Even though you and I may present as though we're holding it together and that we run a pretty tight ship, can I just out you this morning? He knows. He knows the fear. He knows the insecurity. He knows the doubt. He knows all of it. He knows every bit of it. He knows that you, as a person, labor and are heavy laden. See, the image that Jesus is giving right here of labor and heavy ladenness, it's, a, it's like religious and cultural demands, Right? The teachers of the law have put heavy burdens on these people and they just can't do it. They just can't perform at the level that the Pharisees are saying that they need to perform. And what that translates into is just a, an underlying suspicion that you are a huge disappointment and that Jesus must be quite disgusted with you. Now, let's be honest a minute. Are you good at obedience? A lot of the time you're not and we need to repent of that Trust the Lord and follow him. That is absolutely true. But even with that, receiving that, believing that, what does Jesus say to these people? Come to me, I will give you rest. I'll give you rest. You got all these heavy burdens on your back. Jesus is a burden lifting kind of a king. See, he describes the burden, the, um, the weary, the heavy ladenness of the world, but he says, I want to describe to you the burden of being with me. See, being with Jesus, it is a burden, but it's a different kind of a burden. Here's how we know it's a burden. Look back in verse 29. He says, take my yoke upon you. You know what a yoke is? A yoke is an agricultural instrument that was laid upon the shoulders of a pair, a team of oxen. There's this big heavy beam, and when it was laid on their shoulders, then you could hook a plow or a wagon to it, and they'd be able to pull. Now oftentimes, there was a lead ox, and there was a learning ox. The lead ox knew how to plow. 
He knew how to run with a yoke on his back, but the, the learning ox didn't know how to do that yet. And so they would attach him to this learned, wise ox, and slowly but surely, the learning ox would start to catch up. But while the ox was learning, guess who was bearing the vast majority of the weight? The teacher, the mature ox. And see, Jesus right here is saying, I want you to yoke up with me. I want you to apprentice with me. I want you to get close enough to me that you can actually learn how to do this. You see, the, the yoke of the world breaks us with heavy burdens. But you know what the yoke of Jesus does? It teaches us. Learn from me, he says. Watch how I do it. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. He says, learn the unforced rhythms of grace with me. I love that. The yoke of the world is an impatient taskmaster. Hurry up and get it done. Be better, try harder. But the yoke of Jesus is gentle and lowly. <laughs> you see, heavy, heavy ladenness, that is work with no reward, no intimacy, no care. But gentle and lowly, that's work together. Like some of y'all think you got to figure this out on your own. Like, man, I just got to get better at obeying. Listen, Jesus is in it with you. You're doing it together. Nathaniel, you go ahead and come up, bro. The Lord's yoke is easy. Jesus is saying it fits right. It's not a bad fit. The Lord's burden is life, light, I'm sorry. This means Jesus, when he says, come follow me, he is not inviting you into an impossible situation. He's not inviting you into something um, that is impossible. He's inviting you to something that says, partnering with me, this is both possible and purposeful. I want your life to count. You're going to grow. So here, here's the question in all of that, my friends. Whose yoke is on your neck? You will be burdened by the world or by Jesus. And can I tell you this morning, his yoke is far superior. That's what discipleship is. To reject the yoke of the world and to take on the yoke of Jesus who is going to care for you, teach you, and show you the way. Friend, if you are not with Jesus, can I tell you, you will not have soul level rest. You can't have it without him. And I invite you to come to him this morning. I want to help. I want to, I want to ask, like, how, how do we do this, right? How do, how do we practically live in a way that positions us to be with Jesus? This is not a whole list, but here at New City, we talk about the core practices. These little practices that just position us, they don't turn on the faucet of God's grace. No, no, no. But they, they do position us under the faucet like ready to receive from him. Number one, scripture. Like just taking God's word into your heart, your mind, and your life. Prayer, responding to what he said in the word. Um, reflection, asking, God, what are you doing in my life? And what do you want me to do next? Rest, like stopping all the busyness for a minute and just drawing near to just be beloved. If you can't rest, my suspicion is that you have a really hard time believing that you are the beloved of God. And, and number five, finally, body. Submitting our bodies in self-control to the Lord. Caring for the bodies that God has given us. As we do that, we experience intimacy with the Lord who himself took on flesh. In all of this, I just want you to, if you only take one thing today, I just want you to hear this from Jesus. Come to me. Stop trying to figure it out on your own. Come to him and find rest for your souls. You let me pray for you this morning. Oh, Jesus, we, 
we want to come to you. We need the rest. Jesus, do your good work in the room right now. I know that there's got to be some of us who are struggling to receive it, but we feel like we're going to die without it. And Jesus, right now, will you break through that wall and bring renewal and restoration? Holy Spirit, we invite you. Holy Spirit, come. Your ministry is welcome here. We pray this in Christ's name. Well, friends, we don't just want to hear the word. We want to be doers of the word. And so we invite you to a response today. Number one, reflect. Do that work of reflection. God, what were you speaking through the word today? And how would you have me respond? Number two, we come to the Lord's table and realize that Jesus saying to us, come to me, required a high, high cost for him. And so this morning, you've got two stations here in the front. If you belong to Jesus, you are invited to take the Lord's Supper. If you are a Christian, you just take a piece of bread right here and you'll dip it in to the juice and take it as you're ready. And this is meant to be a reminder of the shed body and the shed blood of the Lord. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, um, Paul talks about taking the Lord's Supper, and he says something interesting. Um, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, or without discerning, the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. For me, I want to tell you, I take the Lord's Supper every week as a reminder of the gospel, first and foremost. I want to remember the gospel and that it is for me. And number two, it's a relational check-in for the people around me. Um, When he talks about examining himself right here in the text, before I take the Lord's Supper, I'm always going, is there, are there any broken relationships in my life that I need to make right? Like, because how can I be united to Christ rightly if I'm not obeying him and being united rightly to my brothers and sisters? So um, I would just invite you, is there any broken relationship that you need to make right before you come to the table today? That person's in this room, go grab them. Say, I, I need to ask for your forgiveness for this, or this hurt me, I need us to make this right. And then guess what you do? You go take the supper together. And you remember that it's the body and blood of Jesus that unites you, even in your failures. So come take the Lord's Supper as you're ready. And then finally, friends, we rehearse. We rehearse the day when come to me will literally mean seeing his face. That day's coming. So we sing as though it's true right now. New City, I love you. I love being your pastor. Respond when you're ready.